Right now, though, we are starting the show talking more about what happened in Surrey, a daylight Surrey shooting. As we now know, the target of that shooting was a 30-year-old passenger in a taxi. That person was killed, but the driver of that taxi was also taken to hospital with serious injuries. And Global News has been talking to people in the neighborhood who say they are, well, very concerned about this. So uh, we live just a few blocks from here, and um, this is uh, one of the, the cab companies that we use all the time. My daughter's in a wheelchair, and um, there's not very many wheelchair accessible taxis around. So uh, it's probably we probably know the gentleman uh, who was driving the cab who was shot. How does that make you feel, knowing that that's something you're, you're uh, that's a cab that your daughter uses, um, and it's such a all uh, demographic of people too close to home yeah. like really uh really uh this this was a this was a very surprising shooting because it, they got somebody who was not targeted this time um and it's in the middle of the day in a very busy shopping mall yeah. and my daughter comes up here all the time Joining us now is Mohan Kang, the president of the BC Taxi Association. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for inviting uh, I know that this particular cab company uh, isn't under the umbrella of the BC Taxi Association, but have you heard anything as far as how this taxi driver uh, is doing at this point? It's my understanding that he's uh, out of danger, uh, I, uh, yeah, which is a good news. Yes, definitely. Well, that that is good. Uh, that is a positive thing, certainly, to hear uh, about this. Uh, Mohan, can, can you talk a little bit, though, your response when you heard about this, uh, the shooting where a passenger in a taxi was targeted and the driver was hit? Well, I was shocked and also have a serious concern because it is something which is coming too close, you know, uh, to comfort uh, the way the things are happening in the metro lately uh, reminds me that I hope that we are not going to the old west. Uh, we've talked about this in the past before, in that there are some dangers. Uh, we've unfortunately talked in the past about tra- taxi drivers being uh, being uh, beaten. Uh, we've talked about them being assaulted at times, but this. Uh, the fact that this was a likely what it seems like or sounds like was a stray bullet. Clearly, this person was not the target of this shooting. How do you even start to, if you're a taxi driver? How do you even begin to try and protect yourself against something like that? With this type of thing, uh, it is not uh, possible, frankly speaking, because you know when we got the safety cameras in in the metro area in 2004 5 then upgraded in 2009 uh, i believe the violence rate came down probably around 70 to 72 percent but that's for the common persons right mm-hmm. but and those cameras are also after the fact but this type of thing there's no protection and would you know in this particular incident, not that it would have made a difference, but would this cab have been outfitted? Would there have been a partition or anything separating the driver from the passenger? It won't make any difference because the you know most of the company did put the partition, not the type what you're talking. I'm talking about the COVID-19. Mm-hmm. 
protection they did put majority of the companies uh, in metro and outside also uh, but this type of thing doesn't help at all right because uh, how how do you know the driver has to be psychic uh, to dodge anything coming towards them or looking at a person what his intentions are uh, which is not feasible uh, no, and certainly drivers, I would imagine, don't want to be in a position where they look at somebody and, and think and, and are, are having to decide, oh, should I take you as a fare in my vehicle or, oh, you don't, you, you look like maybe you might be involved in gang activity and I don't want you sitting in my vehicle. Well, you know, we can't. Uh, we have to serve the communities without discrimination, looking at the human rights, you know, and also... Uh, there was passenger and driver bill of rights, which was mainly meant for the people who nighttime were too much and they were rowdy, right, to refuse for safety reasons. But this type of thing, uh, there, there's no escape. Moreover, you know, if, let's say, two guys come and uh, just open your door, back door, and sit in it, and you look back and see some weapon with them, uh, a professional driver, I would do the same thing. You know, I'll simply ask them, where can I take you, sir? Right? Right. And I, I will hold my breath till I have dropped them. Then I will let my breath go. Thanks, God. Right? Right. Uh, that's the best a person or a driver can do or will do. Instead of saying, get out. Sorry, I can't take you. Because as soon as you, you said that, for a normal person, for a reasonable person, he might be mad, but he will leave. But you're asking for trouble if you ask this type of people, get out or I'm not going to take you. Do you know then, have you heard in this, how, when this unfolded, was this an individual who was taking the cab? Was he a fair saying, I, I'm taking this cab, I'd like to go to such and such place and was doing that uh, and didn't know obviously that he was being targeted or was he taking refuge? Did he jump into the cab to get away from somebody that was coming after him? No, I'm not aware of the effects of those states. Right. Okay. Is that something that happens, though, that people, uh, and, and even if it is, I would imagine it wouldn't be that often, but is that something that, that could potentially happen, that somebody jumps into a cab to get away from danger? It could. But then, you know, he simply says, uh, drive, and then he will tell the destination. Right? But but not this type of, uh, you know, that he's being shot at or something, right? Right. Because the duck... Uh, and most of the people who shoot others, uh, they're too close uh, for escape or anything. What do you say to drivers then who, watching this and seeing what happened yesterday, are fearful and are, are a bit hesitant now of being behind the wheel? Well, you know, we are in a profession which we know there are some dangers, uh, some challenges, but at the same token, we never dreamt the challenges would come the way the things are folding in Metro. So now it is up to the government to ensure that the laws are strict because, you know, uh, police can do only so much. They arrest a person and within 15 minutes, half an hour, a high-pressed lawyer 
gets them out, uh, discourages the enforcement, discourages the uh, other stakeholders when they look at the guys on the road again, right? So there has to be something to protect the society, which, you know, the taxi industry uh, is part of the society. We live there, our kids are raised there, and uh, as such, uh, the government must do something uh, to put a stop on it. Uh, do something as far as combating gang violence? Absolutely. All right. Mohan Kang, thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, that is some positive news uh, to hear that the driver uh, is doing okay uh, after being uh, shot, being injured during that shooting. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking. Well, with the growing calls to do something about mental health and mental health supports, we hear often from people saying that we should be looking seriously at reopening Riverview or a similar type hospital, and even perhaps looking more at the BC Mental Health Act and the use of involuntary admission. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Johnny Morris, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, the BC Division. Johnny, thank you so much much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Jill. Well, certainly we've been talking a lot about mental health. Uh, there have been uh, many uh, stories in the news that have sparked these conversations. And Johnny, wanted to talk to you today because whenever we talk about this and uh, what we're seeing in some cases on the streets, the most recent uh, being a gruesome machete attack in downtown Vancouver, when we're talking about things happening where there's a presumed element of a, of a mental health issue, a, a mental health uh, illness. We hear from people, first off, saying, let's reopen Riverview. It's time to open up a facility like that. What do you think about that? Or what is your response to that idea that we need to look at perhaps another institution like that? Well, let me just go to one of the key words you use, and then I'll absolutely talk about um, Riverview for a second. The word you use around presumed is so important. And, and um, in the comments we've made recently, we, we continue to say we need to use absolute caution when it comes to linking um, random or violent incidences with, with mental illness. Um, the research continues to show that most people living with a mental illness, and that's one in five across this country, are not violent. They, they don't do violent things. And most people who are violent don't have a mental illness. Now, having said that, people who live with mental illness um, do um, commit acts of violence at times. But drawing those links when we don't have um, that kind of definable proof is, is something that just further stigmatizes and makes it harder for people to seek help. There's real consequences to those presumptions. So I appreciate you saying that. We've heard... Um, the call for Riverview to reopen many times and and there's been a long history in this province over the past 40, 50 years of of deinstitutionalizing because there was a recognition that asylum-based or the old model of institution-based care um, was starting to go wrong. It it wasn't having the impacts we needed to have and, and those facilities were becoming increasingly overcrowded. When we closed Riverview back in 2011, 2012, when the government closed it, what failed to happen ultimately was the investment in community support to help people stay well in community. Um, we detain 20,000 people a year under the Mental Health Act currently. There's a, there's a lot of detention and there's a lot of people in jails who live with mental illness. So there's something failing there 
when it comes to providing adequate care and community to prevent people from ending up in crisis or um, or um, being in difficult situations like the ones you were describing earlier. When we talk about though the kind of care that is provided at an institution, and I know we use Riverview kind of as the, the benchmark for that or as, as something that people can relate to and remember what it was like, we have heard from, from governments that they're, they are working to bring back a, a form of institution on those same very lands. We've had groundbreaking ceremonies. We know that it's been delayed. Uh, we had the Redfish Healing Centre opened. So is there a way, do you think, though, to bring back, not perhaps the way it was when Riverview was operational before, but some kind of focused institutional care that is beneficial? I, I think the the question there is is really looking for that 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 model that isn't a one size fits all. And you're you're totally right. There's been a, a lot of emphasis on on renewal, and it's such an important point to kind of differentiate between reopening kind of an institutional asylum based response um, that often comes first to mind when you think about Riverview to some of the renewal, including Redfish, which has um, recently transferred um, a number of beds from Burnaby onto the Riverview land. Um, you know, we would be the first to say that that there are times in people's journeys with mental illness where intensive care in a hospital um, might be required, might be needed, and might be warranted. Um, having said that, ensuring that the right supports are in place if someone's in supportive housing or in a, in a living alone in community, those are kinds of the things that we also need to see ramped up. So it's ensuring that we don't kind of gravitate to um, a concept that ultimately I think serves to kind of put people out of sight, like we're going to move distress out of sight, we're not going to see these things on the street anymore, um, and really think about um, the opportunity for community-initiated, community-led care that might involve hospital space, that might involve supportive housing, might be this model around complex care that the province has recently announced. Really building that continuum is what's required and not relying solely on detention or police responses to manage our way out of this complexity. And Johnny, when you mentioned that when Riverview was shut down, when it closed and the province was set to shift to that in-community with supports model, and one of the issues was the supports weren't brought in to the level that they were needed, would that be enough, do you think, to make a difference if maybe we don't focus on institutions and bringing back some form of institution, but making sure there are the supports available in the community? Yes, I mean, um, leading researchers in this country, Dr. Marina Morrow and others, have clearly documented the transition since Riverview's closed and kind of tried to follow the, the, the mental health dollars. And multiple governments are responsible there, federally, provincially, et cetera. Um, we, we won't ultimately treat our way or arrest our way or detain our way out of the challenges of people who, who are experiencing profound or severe mental illness or substance use problems. We really do need to think way up the further the stream. I was in front of the health committee a few weeks ago providing um, um, my contributions there around thinking about trauma prevention, like really thinking about wide-scale efforts to prevent people's experiences of trauma, including during childhood, really looking at the relationship between poverty and inequity and distress in mental health, tackling you know, inaccessibility around housing. And, and that's so complex. I mean, it, you can throw around simple solutions there too, but what we do know is if you don't have housing, if you're unhoused, it's really challenging to maintain your mental health. It's incredibly a precarious situation to do. 
So we do need to look at those pieces. And, and I think the opportunity is for municipalities, for the province, for the federal government, for us as agencies like CMHA and our partners to really work together to move forward rather than reactive solutions, really think through what's required in the area of adult mental health care, youth mental health care, um, to prevent these situations from happening in the very first place. We are talking with Johnny Morris, CEO of the BC Division of the Canadian Mental Health Association. And Johnny, I want to talk to you more about something that is more controversial. That's the idea of involuntary admissions under the BC Mental Health Act. What are your thoughts on this as far as is it a useful tool if someone is deemed a harm to themselves or others and the only way to get them into treatment is to force them? Yes, we, we've said previously that um, legislation um, is, is, is helpful and required in those very precise situations when someone's at grave risk of harm to themselves or to others, when, when they, they wouldn't be served well you know, as a voluntary patient. And, and actually, BC's Mental Health Act, which hasn't been touched for years, actually has some of the most um, generous provisions to detain people in this country. We've actually been calling for its modernization for some time. And we actually see escalating rates of detention in this province. We, we saw at least 20,000 people um, in 2020, 2021 who were detained under this act. And there are countless others who are on what's called extended leave. They're actually on condition in community. And sometimes they actually are not aware that they are. So there's a real need. We've called for it for some time, given some of the progressive reforms we've seen this government make to take a look at that act and make sure it's fit for purpose for the current time we live in. And also look at these increasing rates of detention and what that points to as a need to reinvest in community care. Like you have to remember that being detained under the act is one of the most serious things that can happen to someone. Your, your liberties are being taken away from you. And there's a whole pathway that's gotten to that point, including missed opportunities for preventive, early interventive and community-based care. And said that there are absolutely... Um, having someone admitted to hospital is necessary, it's needed. But what happens when they're released is the other part of the equation. Are the follow-up supports in place? Um, are the things in place there to prevent that person from cycling back into the hospital once more for quite an intrusive intervention, again, being detained? How does it work for, for people, and, and I will put myself in this group as well, unfamiliar with this, but if it is deemed that somebody fits the criteria to be involuntarily admitted. Uh, who is it that, that does that? Where do they go? And, and how long are they held? Um, well, often, so it requires a, a few things. So here the legislation provides the power to the police to take someone to a hospital. Often the police are the main route to take someone or detain someone under the Mental Health Act. And then um, there are rules and procedures in place related to the Mental Health Act around being admitted. And, and a doctor is, is, is involved in making that adjudication. Do you meet the very specific criteria under the Act to warrant um, a stay of a particular length? Um, and um, under the Act, those, those lengths of stay can continue for some time. There are some protections in place as a mental health review board. But physicians and the police um, are, are key, are key um, players in making those determinations um, for, for someone to be detained under the Act. Um, and, you know, we've argued and our partners at Health Justice and, and elsewhere that there's, there's a real need to, to take a look at that. And there's actually been some good improvement lately with um, providing um, protections, I mean, like rights advice for people who are detained under the Act. But that's often the route into um, the application of the Mental Health Act here in the BC.
And, and you mentioned too, one of the the key things would would be when somebody is released. Do they have the supports? Uh, are are they released in a way that's positive for them? Do we monitor that? Do we do we keep information on whether or not involuntary admissions are actually helping people? Well, we we one of the key things we need to look at is is the health system doing what it needs to do under the law in its administration of the Mental Health Act. And the Ombudsperson released um, its progress report two weeks ago under the title of "Committed to Change." It, it was a it was a widespread systemic investigation into how the health system in this province um, applies the act. And one of the key findings was that there are significant challenges and problems across these with how the act is actually applied, including people, the kind of the rules and the regulations. So we actually need to make sure that our health systems are, are doing better in that regard. And it's clear there has been some improvement um, in that. And we can't rely on an act if it's not being applied properly, because we are talking about rights and liberties here. Um, so we need to do that carefully. Um, but on the monitoring side, I mean, at CMHA, we hear from countless people across this province each week who um, talk about, um, you know, being discharged very quickly, they're, they're not seen, there's, there's that lack of follow-up. So there is a real opportunity um, in community to support better follow-up and care once you're discharged from hospital. Uh, we know, um, particularly if you've been admitted because you're suicidal, um, you're, the risk of suicide is very high um, after you've been discharged from hospital. So we need to make sure those supports are, are absolutely in place. There are efforts, valiant efforts underway, I think, in the health system. And there is there's a road to go to make sure that that law is fit for purpose for people. And most importantly, that the community supports are in place once someone is back home, uh, closer to home in community. And I don't think we monitor that adequately at all, Jill. We need to do a much better job there. All right. And Johnny, just one other question. And like you said, and I think important to repeat, not all people with mental illness are violent. Not all violent acts are committed by people with mental illness. But when we see these horrific things happening, and I'll use the example again, uh, lighting your home on fire and attacking people with a machete, that, those are not the actions of somebody that is okay. Th- there's clearly something going on in that. And I know that's an extreme example, but when we see these these things happen, people get frightened and people do wonder, why are we letting people fall through the cracks or why are people not getting help? So how do we even start to address that? I think it's really acknowledging that that any situation of violence is is, is unacceptable and, and um, the impacts of violence with the situation that you described that happened earlier this week, um, the, the shootings that took place in Langley where um, allegedly, you know, vulnerable folks were the ones who were targeted there. And so that's an important part of the equation. Violence of any kind is is unacceptable and, and can have devastating, life-changing consequences on the people who experience. And fear and and being scared of the situations, of course, are very, very um, expected responses to these pieces. If any of us were in a violent situation, I think we'd react in that way. I think it's it's making sure that our, our lens um, is, is appropriately wide enough to think about, well, what are the root causes here? Um, there's, a, there's an investigation or study right now by two leaders, that Minister Eby's commission, that will hopefully yield some findings. Um, and making sure we don't draw inadvertent conclusions where a, a link might not be there, right? So clearly there's distress, 
Um, but um, violence can be um, committed by folks who are in a very rational space as well um, at times. So it's making sure we don't draw those inadvertent conclusions because the consequences are very real. Um, people who, who are living with mental illness who have never had a thought of violence in their lives um, start to feel stigmatized. Um, it, makes, it makes us less likely, and I live with a mental health problem and I've never committed violence. So, you know, I think it makes, makes people less likely to seek help. It kind of chills the ability for people to reach out. And then we have a bigger problem. Um, people, people deteriorate, people get more unwell because they don't feel safe accessing the system. So we need to humanize folks who are living with health conditions. And there are um, good provisions under law around um, tackling folks who might be experiencing a mental illness at the time of committing a crime um, to kind of deal with treatment and supports. There's a forensic system here in BC that's designed to do that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just it's, we don't want to conflate things. And this happens in the U.S. around gun violence as well. We don't want to conflate things because it does set us back. Um, there won't be enough Bell Let's Talk days to counteract the stigma um, that comes with conflated claims, especially when there's no demonstrable link. There might be a link, but we need to use care to make sure it's, it's verifiable. All right. Johnny Morris, thank you so much. Uh, I've taken more of your time than I planned to, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Thank you for your compassionate and your excellent questions, as, as always, Jill. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, some pretty big political news in B.C. as we've been reporting here. Former federal NDP candidate Anjali Apajarai is challenging David Eby for leadership of the NDP. And as we know, the next leader of the NDP will become the premier of B.C. And joining me to talk more about this is Anjali Apajarai. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, what was it uh, that led to you making this decision and deciding to join this race? Well, ever since John Horgan stepped down, there's been a lot of people knocking on my door to step up to the plate to 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 take on this race. Um, and I've been hesitant for <laughs> many good reasons, most of them personal. You know, this is going to be a really difficult race, and um, and uh, it's just it's just become clear. Over the past few months, um, I've heard very clearly from especially young people across the province. I was up in Wet'suwet'en territory where I witnessed some of the destruction that's happening to land against the consent of Indigenous folks. And, um, and, and it just became clear that there's so much disillusionment with the status quo of this party, with the direction that this party's been going in. Um, and so I decided to, to step up to the plate. Uh, in the past, people will know you as very much focused on climate, on climate action. Is it fair to say that that will be the focus for you for this campaign and should you become successful? Certainly. Uh, BC is in a climate emergency. I think there's no question about that. And we've been seeing that, especially last year across the province. It's one, one climate disaster after another. Um, and so it's hard to deny that. But the solutions to that are holistic and they are across the board and the solutions must prioritize working people because we're also in a cost of living crisis. People's lives are also squeezed and all of those things are connected. So, yes, the priority is the climate emergency, but the ways in which we tackle the climate emergency can also make life better for working people um, and has to do with housing, has to do with health care, has to do with, uh, with affordability.
<clears throat> so looking at how we tackle climate change and climate, what would you do differently then, say, from what BC, from what leaders in BC have been doing? If you were the leader of the New Democrats and BC Premier, what would you do differently? I would turn our priorities back upright right now. They're upside down. I would uh, shift the focus away from giving corporations and industry large handouts and and license to operate at the expense of our economy and our working people. And I would start investing in the public good and investing in good jobs uh, and a clean energy transition in people. Right now we're we're handing out billions in subsidies every year to these companies. We are allowing them to have their way with our economy and with, with our environment. Um, and uh, it simply does not have to be that way. That's not, it's not the inevitable choice. It's simply the choice that this administration has been making for years, for decades now. Uh, in the past, you've been critical as well of the Site C Dam project. So how would you then mesh being the leader of a province with Site C? You know, it's really interesting. This is, you know, the same the same sort of question um, as before around reprioritization and questioning, really starting to question the role of industry in our province. How much benefit are working people getting out of big industrial projects? What is the true cost? Um, and there are so many different kinds of costs, not just the economic, but huge environmental costs, the cost to future generations, how much we're robbing from the future to feed the present, um, and, and uh, looking at the benefits and seeing if those benefits are really in the interest of, of people right now in BC. Are we, are we really seeing a benefit from pushing through projects that have been shown time and time again to have a greater cost than they're worth? I'm hearing really clearly from, from young people uh, that's, those are a, that's a large part of the movement of people that have put me forward into this position. Um, they, they, don't see, they feel that their future is being sold. And so I think that's a big part of uh, the equation here that we need to consider. Do you think, though, that given the push to electric vehicles and to going to more electric power, do we not need Site C for that type of a future? I think we need to electrify, but I think there are so many other uh, solutions on the table. My priority would be to invest in clean jobs and in a sustainable transition to a clean economy. And so my focus would really be on um, getting workers the retraining and the job opportunities that they need, uh, making sure that it's about people first. Um, I think that <clears throat> I think that everything um, that we have uh, signaled to workers over the past few years has been that. Um, their well-being comes second, and we are sort of pandering to the interests of, of companies without making it really about what the benefit to people will be. Absolutely, we need to electrify and to move to a zero-carbon economy um, immediately, and all the, the solutions and the technology are in place for that. It's simply a matter of political will to find the best solution for people and for, for the ecology, the incredible ecology of this province. And I don't mean to only talk about Site C, but just one more point on that. So if you were the leader, would you want to shut it down? I don't think that that's, um, I think Site C is something, it's, like I said, it's part of a package of 
decision-making and reprioritization and examining the role of industry in our province. Um, within the climate emergency, it would be necessary to reevaluate the, the role that industry plays in our economy, um, the, the amount of economic power that they hold and the amount of um, not just leeway, but actually rewards that we have given them. Uh, that would be a very immediate and necessary evaluation. I want to play just a little bit of something I know you are very familiar with because it is your voice, but people might not be. This is just a little bit of a speech that got a lot of attention at the time from your appearance in 2011 at the climate conference in South Africa. Respect the foundational principles of this convention. Respect the integral values of humanity. Respect the future of your descendants. Mandela said... It always seems impossible until it's done. So, distinguished delegates and governments around the world, governments of the developed world, deep cuts now. Get it done. So in that, just that small portion of the speech when you're reaching out and and putting that to governments, uh, but you now want to be part of that government. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was 11, 11 years ago now. I was uh, a young activist at the UN and I was witnessing in real time, uh, you know, uh, where power was blocking progress on climate change. And over the past 11 years, I've kept track of that UN process and I've watched Canada not show up in a good way. I've watched Canada be part of that um, part of the group of countries dragging their feet on climate progress. And I think we're at a point in time where we need to engage the systems that are not working in our, uh, in our best interest. Uh, it's time to engage with power directly. I don't think that government is the only place to engage. I think it's one site of struggle, and there are many other sites of struggle. This is where I find myself, and this is where I find myself called to enter right now, but I do think it's really important to engage with the systems directly um, to make them better and to make them work for us. I think that, um, I think that this party has not been working for us. Um, I think that um, electoral politics is something that is starting to feel out of touch and out of reach to a lot of young people, a lot of the young people that are represented. Um, but, I, but I believe that this is a place where we can make really good and transformative change um, I believe that this party can be better and go back to its original New Democrat values, which are about protecting the public good and taking care of people. Um, that's what I'm here for. Um, I am here for the soul of the party, and um, that's what I'll be representing on this run. And just when on that note, then, if we look at other kind of shifts, even on a federal level with the NDP shifting back to to kind of the roots or, as you put it, what's writing, what's what's upside down or kind of shifting back. Do you have any concerns, though, in, in a province of British Columbia where there are jobs that are that are resource based? There are jobs in oil and gas. How would you convince somebody then who works in oil and gas or how would you convince the plumber who drives a van, a gas powered van as part yeah. of his? or her job how do you convince that person to vote for you i mean unfortunately we have a political culture and we and we have an economy right now that has told workers that there is no alternative and it's told them that um it's told them to to uh 
Um, it's told them that industry is working in their best interest, and that's their only option. And right now, for a lot of workers, it is. Um, and my message would be, whether you believe me or not, I am fighting for your future and for your well-being. I think that the transition to uh, tackle the climate emergency and to transition to a low-carbon and zero-carbon economy has to prioritize workers or it doesn't, or, or it's not a real transition. Um, there, no one should be left behind in this transition. No one, should be, no one should be left out in the cold. No one should be left without a job. Um, and so my priority is absolutely taking care of workers. It's really about a good life for all of us. It's not about climate groups versus um, the energy industry. It's about a good life for humans, for people on the planet. And so um, I don't see them as being opposed in that way. All right, Anjali Apadur, I will leave it there for today. But thank you again so much for making the time for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring on Richard Zussman, a Global BC reporter based at the legislature, to talk more about this. Anjali Apadurai joining the race, going up against David Eby, now the only two in the leadership race for the BC NDP. Hey, Richard. Hey, Joe. How are you? Uh, very good. How about you? Great, great. Uh, what are your thoughts on this and uh, the campaign and the focus on climate justice that we're going to be seeing? Yeah. This is a big shift, and I know there's a part of the BC NDP that has felt that the John Horgan government has become too centrist, have become too mainstream, and is trying to bring back some of those principles that the activist wing of the party have been advocating for for a long time. And so those issues around Trans Mountain, around Site C, around uh, subsidies to uh, oil and gas companies, and Anjali Abadurai is now their voice. It is not the majority opinion within the party, but is going to make things very uncomfortable for David Eby. It is going to ensure that there are debates here, there are media interviews, and there are issues that E.B. will be put on the spot about here. And there's a worry that if he drifts too far towards some of these activist opinions, that he will lose votes to the D.C. Liberals. On the other end of things, Jill, if David E.B. moves more into the center, there are worries that some of these longtime activists will leave the party or find a home with the B.C. Green. So it puts a lot of pressure on E.B. here to walk that fine line. Up until today, the drapes were being measured. He was ready to walk into the premier's office in October. Now, with Abadurai in the race, if everything, if she has the money and everything gets approved, we're now going to have a contest with a winner announced on December 3rd. It delays David E.B. becoming premier, but also you know, puts pressure on him to ensure that he actually wins that job with somebody standing in the way now. Uh, I know there's also been a lot of response to this saying it's a good thing to have debate and to have competition when we're talking about leadership. Do you think there's any chance there will be other contenders? I don't think so. And when you talk about good thing, I think it's a good thing for the BC Liberals. <laughs> They're the ones that are celebrating today, knowing that David Eby has to go through the ringer now. Kevin Falcon had to do the same. He had a lot of pressure. He had Val Litwin basically announce, I don't want to be a part of a party with Kevin Falcon and walk away. David Eby will now have some of those same pressures that Kevin Falcon had to experience going through the ringer of a leadership race. I think this is likely going to be the field, Jill, 
Maybe we'll have others reevaluate the situation and say there may be room for me here or there. But with 48 MLAs already pledging their support for David Eby, it would be surprising for me if some of them come out and say, oh, well, I'm backing away now. I'm going to run myself. We've heard so many say they're not interested. They believe this is David Eby's time. I think this is going to be the two of them squaring off. And it's going to be those issues around you know, First Nations rights on land and title, the role of police and the RCMP. And that's going to be a fascinating challenge between E.B. and Apadurai around, you know, role of policing. How critical could a former attorney general be around the role of police? We're going to have these serious conversations around Site C, Kinder Morgan and, and Trans Mountain. And, and you were right about Site C, we are beyond this now. There's no going back from this. But what does it mean around what projects come next? And that's going to put EB in an uncomfortable situation in, in, in all of these cases. And just finally, Richard, do you think then we will get a better idea if there is going to be a shift with the NDB on, NDP sorry, on a uh, provincial level? Yeah, and I think we're going to see David EB mass sign up people across the province. His opponent does not have the same name recognition as he does, but it will be curious to see on some of these key issues, does David Eby change his position in order to, to keep that part of the party that Apadurai, um speaks to and has recruited within the fold? Or does he sort of get back to that centrist of, you know, cutting tolls and focused it on those sort of Metro Vancouver issues, Massey Tunnel, all this stuff, and and sort of allow maybe some of that environmental wing to drift a little bit. It's funny to think, Jill, you and I have covered David E. a long time. He was an activist. Mm -hmm. He was vocal. He was on the front line of protest, but he is now very much the mainstream candidate that activists have on a dartboard that they're throwing darts at. It's an interesting turn for David Eby over the last decade, I think, and, and today very much encompasses that. All right. It's going to be interesting. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, so.